As we begin tonight, um, let's turn to Luke 18. I want to start there. We're going to be in verses, um, starting in verse 18, and then we'll jump ahead a little bit um, to uh, Luke chapter 19 as well. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. Jump ahead to chapter 19. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to them, Today salvation has come to this house, since also he is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. When I was asked to prepare a discussion um, and encouragement on generosity for tonight, I was conflicted by the challenges that come on that topic. On one hand, the Bible is clearly full of teaching on the topic of money and possessions, both for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and for the New Testament follower of Christ, as we'll see all throughout the evening. It's a topic any believer must engage if they read God's word to pursue holy living. But on the other hand, money so closely affects every decision that we make in our life, whether we want it to or not, that it's a challenge to present any sort of practical framework in a way that balances both Christian living tonight would serve as an opportunity for all of us to glorify God for the generous hearts among us. This is a church full of generous people and families who cheerfully sacrifice for the work of God's kingdom, both through Sovereign Grace Dayton and through external ministries locally, nationally, around the world. And I hope that tonight we can engage God's word in a way that the Holy Spirit would bring to mind particular examples of generosity that we might lift those up as a living sacrifice to God for his generous provision to us through the generosity of his children. The other goal I have is that God's word 
would cut into our hearts sharper than any two-edged sword, and that we might see areas of sinful disobedience or neglect on this virtue and be driven to repentance. There's a passage uh, in your handout from a book that I found very helpful in preparing, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, uh, which addresses many topics, but among them, money. Some years ago, I, that is Pastor Keller, was doing a seven-part series of talks on the seven deadly sins at a men's breakfast. My wife, Kathy, told me, I'll bet the week that you deal with greed, you have your lowest attendance. She was right. People packed it out for lust and for wrath and even for pride. But nobody thinks they're greedy. As a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. So in light of that, what I believe the Lord has for us tonight can be summed up as this. A follower of Christ is called to spirit-empowered stewardship of God's resources that enables a life of sacrificial, God-glorifying generosity. So we're going to break that down into kind of two parts. The first part being a look at what spirit-motivated stewardship looks like, and a second part examining what it means to live a sacrificial, God-glorifying life of generosity. So first, spirit-empowered stewardship. Generosity, first and foremost, flows from God's grace in us. At the heart of the gospel, the good news of Christ is a generous God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians 1. The Father sent his Son to redeem us, to adopt us into his family, and to give us all the rights of his children as sons and daughters of the King of the universe. Every gift received is a generous gift from the Father, who is the perfect giver. He is our ultimate example of someone who delights in giving good gifts. There is no gift greater that God could have given us than the gift of salvation bought through the sacrifice of his Son. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. So while there are countless facets and examples of the outworking of God's generosity in us, we really can compress it down to that fundamental kernel, that Christ taking on poverty in this life in order to give us a gift of eternal life. When this truth of God's character takes root in our hearts, it can bloom into acts of generosity in response to the immeasurable generosity that we have been shown in the work of Christ. So let's return to those passages at the beginning. These two passages, separated by only a brief few verses at the end of Luke 18, show kind of a mirror image of a man with money and his encounter with Jesus. So we see the rich young ruler. he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Here's a man looking for a box to check to tell him that he's on the right path. And from his perspective, he probably does have a lot of things figured out in his life. There's nothing implied that he has obtained his wealth in any nefarious means. It's just that he's rich and he's a young ruler. He tells Jesus that he has kept the law from his youth. And while we might be able to argue that on theological grounds, that that's not true, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that, you know, externally in his community, he has been an upstanding citizen uh, as a Jewish man. 
perhaps he's asking Jesus um, what he must do to inherit eternal life because he feels he's already accomplished whatever it is Jesus is going to say through his, general, his uh, generally virtuous life, which has seen him materially blessed by God. Yet the sacrifice that Jesus asks cuts through the rich young ruler's ability to stand on his own two feet. The wise son of God looks through the exterior of this man and he sees the vines of greed that are wrapped around his heart, vines that have been there for years and through negligence have grown thick and strong to the point that no man can free himself from their grasp. The man leaves dejected because he knows that he cannot accomplish the requirements of God's perfect righteousness on his own. Jesus sums up his situation perfectly with the metaphor of the camel passing through the eye of the needle. We might say in a more modern phrase, Jesus would say, it's easier for a pig to grow wings and fly than for a rich man to get into heaven. Plain and simple, Jesus is saying it takes a miraculous work of God to get a man like that into God's kingdom. But then we turn the page and we get to Zacchaeus. We have a nearly opposite situation from the one we just read. First, we see that the interaction between Zacchaeus and Jesus is not uh, instigated by Zacchaeus, but by Jesus. Jesus um, comes to him and he looks and he says, Zacchaeus. He calls out to Zacchaeus. In Christ's calling, that is the first interaction. We also see that there's a juxtaposition between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus in the description given by the people who witness um, Jesus and Zacchaeus interacting. They say, he has gone to be the guest in a house of a man who is a sinner. So as a tax collector, um, you know, if you've read the New Testament, we all know that the tax collectors are, you know, they're the, one of the lowest of the low. They have betrayed God's people to collect and steal from them for the Roman government. So he has no merit to stand on, seeking the approval or the affection of the traveling teacher. Finally, we see Zacchaeus express a newfound heart of generosity, not out of obedience to a command that Jesus gave him, like the opportunity was presented to the rich young ruler, but out of response to his encounter with the Son of God. It's brought to its final focus, the comparison between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus, and the declaration of Jesus when he says that on this day, Salvation has come to this house. So just one chapter before, what Jesus said is impossible with man has happened. The camel has passed through the eye of the needle. It's just played itself out on the pages of Luke's gospel. These two men show us that a generous heart is the outworking, not of what the man can do, but of the Holy Spirit working through an encounter with God. Generosity is not for man's glory, but it's for God's glory. God's glory. When we hear um, the word and when our heart is transformed by the Spirit, the focus of our actions shift from our own self and our own situation to focus on the glory of God. This heart that is transformed by the Holy Spirit seeks God's glory first, and this can clearly be seen um, in a very familiar passage on the topic of generosity, 2 Corinthians 8. So for context in this passage, Paul is appealing to the church of Corinth uh, to contribute to the aid of suffering believers in the church of Jerusalem. So in this process, he commends the believers from Macedonia um, who have already given and have already collected, already um, presented that gift, and not out of their own abundance, but out of poverty. So in uh, chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, verse 1, he writes, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then, and then by the will of God to us. I think one of the keys of that passage there is that last phrase, that they first gave themselves to the Lord and then they gave themselves to the apostles, that is, you know, to Paul and to the other believers. The Macedonian brothers and sisters offered themselves as a living sacrifice, and when they were focused not on themselves and their own situation, but on the Lord, they were empowered to give in such a manner that their generosity stands as a testament to the work of God preserved for all eternity in Scripture. I hope that we can have a heart that is transformed by God and is so focused on His glory that we can have hearts that outpour in generosity like that, not just of our money, but of our gifts, of our time. Sacrificial, God-glorifying generosity is the root of the gospel, and it's the root of the outpouring of the gospel in our hearts. So I want to shift a little bit from, you know, those kind of foundations of the gospel to maybe a more practical outworking of what it looks like for believers to live generously in our modern culture. So as I said, um, kind of at the outset, I hope that what we hear in the words of Scripture are an encouragement for our already generous living and as a spur to continued growth and generosity. Um, so also, um, I'm going to mention several resources that I found helpful in preparing. Um, a couple of them are in the library um, over there, so um, you know, we're not going to exhaust this topic tonight for sure. So one resource I found helpful is a book from our library called Money Counts. Um, it's the small one. There's, there's a couple in there. There's a small one. There's bigger ones. The small one is the one that, um, that I started to read just because I'm a slow reader in pre preparation for this. It's a small book. Um, it speaks both biblically and practically on how believers might manage their money. It's more framework as opposed to, you know, maybe how to manage, you know, your retirement, how to manage your insurance. There's, there's other books and things like that on those topics that are helpful as well, but that one's a good kind of general framework. In this book, there is a section where the author outlines the lies that we often hear in the American church about God and money, and I found that part helpful um, as kind of a framework for, like, the negative around what we might believe. It's hard to um, define what is biblical living because, like I said, there's Christian liberty in our finances. So it's, you know, good to start and to define what's not biblical, Christian finance and Christian generosity. So I'm just kind of going to run through those. In that book, you can find kind of a more in-depth explanation there, but I found these helpful. So the first lie, God grants material prosperity um, in response to faithfulness. So many of you, I'm sure, have heard the term prosperity gospel, which is linked to many famous preachers in this country and around the world um, who have teaching that does very little to point us to a love of Christ. Most teach that faith in God is a pathway to a happy, fulfilling life on earth, and anyone who suffers in this life merely lacks sufficient faith in the Lord. This can be twisted even more to say that um, any poverty or any sin that you have is a result of lack of generosity and that there's a seed that you can plant um, financially that will be reaped financially in their ministry. Um, it's a reading, um, it's like a, a misrepresentation of a passage in Malachi um, that he outlines in that book that's very helpful. 
Um, but the Bible makes it clear that faithful individuals come from all levels of the socioeconomic ladder. It can be true that God is sovereign over the wealth and poverty levels of his children, and that God blesses those who are faithful without those things being totally correlated. The blessing of the Lord is not necessarily material wealth that we see in this life. In fact, if you go back to Luke 18, and you can even look in just about every previous chapter of Luke, Jesus clearly says that material wealth is a barrier to the faithful entering the kingdom of heaven. So don't allow that lie that God blesses materially those who are faithful to him. Um, Don't let that lead you to doubt the Lord's love for you based on financial struggles, or um, maybe worse, the opposite side of that is to expect financial abundance um, from the Lord as a payment for pious living. Line number two, God loves poverty. So this is kind of the opposite side of that same coin. Um, Maybe a reaction to the prosperity gospel can be healthy in a way, maybe a little too far in some circumstances. We might come to the conclusion based on the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus that giving away his possessions is a sign of his conversion and that God desires his followers to be completely anti-materialistic. Like I said, Luke is full of other examples leading up to those passages that we read Jesus condemning the wealthy. But, like I said with the prosperity gospel, this is a reaction to money itself, more like the dangers of money, as opposed to any intrinsic evil that might come um, from money or that money has. There are examples all through Scripture of well-off, even affluent individuals who love and serve the Lord. One example, um, Acts 16, Lydia, uh, when she's converted, um, it says in the Bible she is a seller of purple goods. So if you know anything about Roman culture back then, the color of like the Roman emperor was purple because purple dye was so expensive. So for her to be a seller of purple goods meant that she was dealing with the highest echelon of society, and she probably was financially wealthy from that. But clearly she's converted. So to ascribe righteousness to um, an individual who um, is poor just because they're poor or an individual who is wealthy just because they're wealthy, both of those lies, that totally misses the point. So if you fall off one side of the road to the prosperity gospel or you fall off the other side of the road to the poverty gospel, it's an incorrect um, ascribing of righteousness based on our, our wealth or our material possessions. Um, in, in a book that I read, there was a quote, you can be a poor Scrooge as easily as you can be a wealthy, abundant giver. Line number three, God approves of my approach to money. So maybe you've thought about this subject a lot. Um, you've thought long and hard about it. You've read, you know, multiple books. You've read, um, you know, Dave Ramsey maybe as well. Um, and I just say, you know, praise God for that. If you have, you know, taken time in your life to organize your finances in a way that is generous and sacrificial. Um, But the danger in that is to compare yourselves to the way that other people uh, organize their finances in the church. So I, um, you know, we should guard our hearts against comparison to our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Perhaps um, you tithe on your gross income and not your net income, or perhaps you give 15% instead of the standard kind of 10%. Um, maybe you go to the uh, friend's house, a church friend's house, and you see on the refrigerator, you see, um, you know, three or four children through Covenant Mercies that they sponsor, and then you only sponsor one. Uh, don't fall into that trap of comparison. It's very easy to fall into that trap. Faithfulness looks different for each family and each individual at various seasons of life, 
Much like uh, Matthew 25, where the master gives his servants different amounts of money to manage while he is away. Instead of comparing your financial situation to your neighbor or your brother, seek the Spirit to lead you and convict you to faithful, sacrificial giving in your own circumstance. Line number four, God likes financial independence. So, um, you know, Dave Ramsey, very common in our, in our Christian circles. Obviously, Dave has done a lot of good help uh, to many families to help get out of the debt trap in our country, um, to help kind of break those chains that can so easily uh, drag people down. Dave clearly views his work as a ministry as well, equipping people to manage their money in a way that is God-honoring. The danger is not in learning to steward your money, going through a method like that, but the heart and mind that can very easily turn away from God into a self-dependent as opposed to a God-dependent view of our resources. So let's turn um, to Luke 12, verse 13, and we're going to read an account of one of the most famous financially independent people in the Bible. Luke 12, 13. I'm going to emphasize a few words in here as well. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The warning in that passage clearly is to be vigilant and guard your faith from shifting to your own self to provide for your family, for your own needs. Even Warren Buffett is not financially independent when it comes to standing before the Lord. Lie number five, God likes big givers. So this lies essentially kind of downstream of lie number one. You know that God will bless big givers. God will bless your generosity. Um, God does not desire us to hit a certain number or a certain percentage of our income when we give. He cares about our hearts. Mark 12, and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to them, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything that she had to live on. Second Corinthians 9, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Line number six. God doesn't mind as long as I fill in the blank. So 
This one I kind of thought in my head as like the 90-10 rule. As long as I'm giving my 10% to the church, I have Christian liberty to do with whatever I want, the remaining 90%, as I see fit. So whether you give that traditional 10% tithe or you give some percentage more, some percentage less of your income, the point is that we ought to not put um, so much emphasis on that number or to focus on that number so much that we think that other number is not touched by God, that that remaining 90% is mine. We are stewards of God's treasure, and he has entrusted to us in this life the various resources and the various um, possessions that he wants to use for his kingdom. We are stewards of God's treasure, and it is why the gospel perspective is so crucial to the outworking of our financial lives. We should strive to view our finances as a way that we can grow God's kingdom in our homes with how we spend our leisure time and with how we budget for and consume um, our meals, handle our vacation time, everything of that falls under God's dominion. So, living generously. Um, I want to kind of, you know, wrap up a little bit with some exhortations. So these exhortations, those four exhortations in your handout, those are coming from um, the, uh, the Sovereign Grace Virtues. So um, in, uh, in Kale's handout last week, there was a link to uh, the Sovereign Grace Church's website that had these virtues on there. These are um, kind of an outworking of those. These are listed there. And I think that they're applicable to us. They're, they're a good kind of takeaway point. They're a good framework to work from. Number one, be rich in good works. So obviously generosity centers a lot around money. Um, the Bible, when talking about generosity, is talk, you know, talks a lot about money. The Bible teaches a lot about money. But um, as we've seen, we could easily you know, give that 10%. We could you know, just write it off and use that as an excuse to not live generously um, in other areas of our life and not perform generous acts. So um, if you're using that as an excuse, um, you know, I just want to challenge you to think of how we can be more generous in our living. I know as, um, you know, I'm, a, I'm mid-30s, I have three kids, I've seen the shift in my life. I think this is a common shift for people um, in my season of life where I was in college and I was, you know, here, I was at church, uh, not this church, but every, you know, I was here every time I could be. I was serving, I was doing all kinds of stuff with my time because at all this time and I had like no money, right? So I could not be generous with my money, but I could be generous with my time. And then as I got out of school, started a job, um, you know, started to have a steady income, oh great, I can be more generous with my, with my money. That's, that's wonderful. But I've added to that, you know, a wife and three kids and a mortgage and, you know, a career that's not just nine to five, but, you know, my phone's probably getting messages right now from my boss. And uh, so then my time goes away, but my money is still there that I can give. So I could very easily take that mindset and say, well, I'm giving that way. I'm giving with my money, but not with my time. It's very easy to, to take that mindset and say, I'm good. That's my generous living. So I'll challenge all of us. I'll challenge myself even. Don't let that mindset settle in. Use your, um, use your resources not just to, um, to write that check, but to support uh, local ministries, um, to help a friend with their grocery budget, uh, pay for a meal, uh, invite somebody over, you know, feed them out of your own, your own grocery budget. Money, like I said, is not the only resource in, with which we can be generous. We all have a finite amount of time um, that we can spend selfishly or generously. God calls us to different areas of ministry in different seasons of life, obviously. I'm not serving as much as I was, you know, two years ago, let alone seven years ago before I was married and started having kids. 
Um, but um, we all should be striving to be generous with our time and serving in some manner, serving the community, um, praying for the community, meeting with our brothers and sisters. As a husband, I'll challenge men to not just uh, take that opportunity for yourself, but uh, allow your wife to do that too. Give her time away from the home and the kids um, to also be generous with her time. Financial generosity is not an excuse um, to check out of other areas of generous living. Number two, give when it seems unreasonable. So we've touched on this a little bit already, but um, I did feel convicted as I prepared for this evening that the Bible makes it clear that a Christian's generosity of finances and possessions and time would produce some level of sacrifice that we might expect a typical American in a similar economic means um, wouldn't do. So we should be in, the Bible calls us to live differently than our, than our culture. Christian generosity motivated not by self-righteousness, but by the Holy Spirit should look unreasonably generous to an outsider. And again, this isn't trying to hit some arbitrary number um, on that tithe check um, or a level of lifestyle poverty to make it good enough. Um, but perhaps you might work it into your regular financial planning. Uh, what does it look like for me to give sacrificially in this season of my life? I know that it's very easy for, um, you know, like lifestyle creep and just to say, well, this is my number and I'm giving it and that's what I've given for years. But I, I just felt convicted for myself as I was preparing this. It's like, what does, it, what does it look like? Does that number stretch me? Does that number make me sacrifice things that not as a, you know, not pridefully, but if somebody were to ask, it's like, why don't you do this? It's like, well, I don't make that financial decision. You know, I have other financial priorities. And that can be a way that our hearts are shaped by God. So if you're starting on this path of generosity, um, like I said earlier, a 10% tithe, you know, that's like a traditional benchmark. That is a great first step. Um, if that's too much, like if you sit down and you do the math and that's too much, um, dial it back. Like I said, God loves a cheerful giver. He does not expect a certain level. If that 10% feels easy, then I would encourage you to not allow that to be your last step. Ask not how much must I give, but rather how much can I give? Number three, support your church's mission. Um, like I said at the beginning, um, I, want these, I want this to be a celebration of what we already see. Um, this, this is the one that I feel most encouraged about. We're in this building. We've been here for less than a year, and so many of us were involved in that move. We know the, you know, the financial uh, sacrifice that we've all made, the time sacrifices that we've all made to move from Bellbrook to this building, and I've just seen so much fruit even in just the people, the new people that God has brought into our number um, since we've moved up here. It's, uh, it truly has been very, um, very encouraging to me to see God kind of reward us in that step of faithfulness. And the fruit we see now doesn't even compare to what uh, we pray the Lord would give us um, as we grow into our community more, as our church body grows 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now. The local church is God's primary instrument of the Great Commission, so um, that's why, you know, I kind of challenge us all to support that mission if you're not already. He has given us the opportunity to exercise a generous spirit doing the eternal work for his kingdom here on Smithville Road. Lastly, and maybe most foundationally, is to fix your heart on Christ. So any discussion that we have about generous living fails to meet our ultimate goal if, it's not, if it does not lead to increased faith in Christ and a longing for a sanctified heart. 
God does not want, nor does he need our generosity to be a means to an end, where we give out of compulsion, yet still harbor a greedy temperament. When you perform a financially generous act, whether it be, you know, going into the church center app and sending your tithe, or, um, you know, opening an email that says, hey, your auto payment for this ministry went through this month. Maybe take a moment, lift up thanks to God. Don't just say, okay, good, like archive that email where it needs to go. Take that as an opportunity to worship God for your means that you are able to, to give back to him. That sacrifice. Remember those moments the loving Father has graciously sent his Son as a free gift to purchase for us the immeasurable gift of salvation and adoption into his family. So as we close tonight, um, break, about to break into discussion groups, I just want us to, to focus on that, to, to remember that we are loved and known most by a generous God who so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him might not die but have eternal life. Um, at the bottom, like I said, there are some resources, um, some other books that were helpful for me, not just in preparation for this, but throughout kind of my life as well, um, as I've, uh, you know, tried to grow in this Christian virtue. Um, you know, I encourage you to, um, to utilize those. One, the one book on there I've not read was, um, is the Jim Neuheiser book. He just mentioned that this last week, um, weekend at the men's retreat. He said that's kind of like a a biblical counseling view of the Dave Ramsey model. So if that appeals to anybody, that book is in the library. I think there's three, two or three copies over there. Um, and that's a great, you know, if you, if you feel like you kind of understand, but you're not sure what the outworking is, um, I've glanced at it a little bit. I've not read the whole thing yet, but it looks like a very good resource. So I would encourage you to use that one. Um, thank you for, um, thank you for the time. Thank you for the opportunity to come share. Um, I appreciate, um, again, just the generosity that I see. Even as I look out, um, I know the generous spirits and the generous hearts that are sitting in this room um, and uh, the opportunity that we have to, to grow and to sacrifice and to love the Lord um, with our hearts, our souls, with our, with our wallets, with our pocketbooks, um, that we might, uh, we might know him more, we might bring glory to him more in this community. Um, so for the rest of our time, um, Let's break up into, um, into some groups here. There are some discussion questions at the bottom um, that I pray that you, we can work through uh, to encourage each other and, uh, and have a good discussion leading forward. So thank you.